0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Eagerly Awaiting Our Hope eagerly awaiting our hope. We're considering Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 23 through 25. So as we come back to our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, we're in the eighth chapter of Romans where Paul has now taken up the subject of Christian suffering. From chapter 4 until this point, Paul's central aim has been to assure the believer of his justification or to assure the believer of his right standing with God through faith alone in Christ alone, and to assure him of all the blessings that accompany that glorious status. Our justification is by faith alone, and it's by faith alone so that it might be according to grace alone, as Paul says in chapter 4, and it is by grace alone so that it might be sure, so that it might be certain to all the seed of Abraham, whose seed you are, if you have turned from your sin to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul's point in all of this, ours is a hope that does not disappoint. Ours is a hope that does not disappoint. Although that hope is sure, and although Paul has driven his point home and has assured us of the certainty of that hope, we hope, brothers and sisters, for something that we do not yet see. That's verse 25. We hope for what we do not see. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a pledge. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that hope, but we don't yet possess it. We've been placed into union with our Lord Jesus Christ through faith, but we haven't yet entered our rest as he himself has entered his rest. We've received the Spirit, not as a spirit of bondage to fear, but we've received the Spirit as a spirit of adoption, whereby we have the blessed privilege of calling upon God as our Father. We have the blessed privilege of inheriting as sons, but we haven't yet inherited. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs and joint heirs with Christ, but we haven't yet entered into our glory as sons. Being united together with Christ in His death and in His resurrection, being co heirs with Christ of eternal glory, comes with a present and sobering implication. And that implication is this. The path upon which the believer will arrive at his heavenly glory is the same path walked by our Savior when he arrived at his heavenly glory. It is the path of suffering. It is a path, Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, whereby we fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ for the sake of his body, the church. It's during this time, during a time of tribulation, Paul says it is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's during this time of tribulation that we, as it were, fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, as a suitable helper. Suitable helper to our bridegroom, we continue his work of multiplying new creation image bearers such that the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we're going to work and labor in his vineyard in the same way in which he did, in a world that is hostile to our faith. As he suffered in that work, we are going to suffer in that work. A student is not above his master, not above his teacher. Romans chapter eight, verse 17. We are heirs of God and we are joint heirs with Christ if, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Paul refers to that uh, in a beautiful way. He refers to that as our, our fellowship in his sufferings, the fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. We're not yet partakers of that heavenly glory. And for now, we have fellowship with our Savior a fellowship together with him in his suffering. That glory, brothers and sisters, is most certainly before us. It is most certainly, assuredly before us. It is a hope that we have as an anchor for our soul. And verse 18 is meant to encourage us along that path. This is a hope that we have as an anchor for our soul. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Nevertheless, while we wait, <laughs> while we eagerly wait with perseverance the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ, suffering will accompany the pilgrim as he makes progress toward the celestial city. And Paul, Paul speaks of that context, the context of suffering for the Christian in his present life, in his present experience. Paul speaks of the context for that suffering in terms of three groanings. In verses 19 through 22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. The whole creation suffers as it were, eagerly awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. Not only that, verses 23 through 25, we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting our consummated adoption, the redemption of our body. And finally, verses 26, 27, the spirit himself Groans for us, groans with us, as it were, making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, in our last sermon together, we considered the groaning of the cosmos, the entire created order. That's what that word cosmos means. It refers to order, created order. The entire created order has been unwillingly subjected to futility, unwillingly subjected to a uselessness under the curse of God against man's sin. That word conveys that the creation, the cosmos, is incapable of fulfilling its ultimate purpose of an unmarred display, an unmitigated display of the glory of God. And in that creation, in the words of Paul, personified as groaning in agony, laboring, travailing with birth pains, bearing the weight of man's sin, as it were, awaiting its own deliverance from bondage to corruption. That deliverance, the deliverance of the creation described by Paul as a glorious liberty that is bestowed upon children of God at the end of the age. Now, with that, having considered the groaning or the suffering of the creation, we move forward now in our text to consider the second of three groanings, the groaning of God's people. Look at verse 23. And not only that, not only does the creation groan, as it were, but we also, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, Paul moves now from personifying creation in suffering, now to depicting the actual experience of Christians as they live the Christian life. And I've planned to unpack Paul's instruction here under three simple headings. One, our present experience. Two, our future hope. And three, our ongoing attitude, our present experience, our future hope, and our ongoing attitude. Consider with me first, our present experience in verse 23. Paul begins verse 23 with not only that. Not only is the cosmos groaning under the weight of the curse, not only does creation groan and labor with birth pains awaiting its deliverance, but verse 23, we also We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Even we ourselves, there's an emotive quality to that language, isn't there? Even we ourselves, and what it's intended to communicate is this, even we who have the Spirit Even those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, those new creations of God, even we ourselves, we who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, even we ourselves groan in this life, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. In verse 23, Paul is describing the present ongoing experience of the believer. And he begins by describing the believer as someone who possesses the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, in context, Paul's referring here to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. That's verse 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Those who have the Spirit are God's people. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's verse 11. The Spirit who leads all those who are the sons of God, that's verse 14. He is the spirit of adoption, the spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's verse 15. Believers are those who have the spirit. Believers here, verse 23, described as those who have the first fruits of the spirit. Now, what does Paul intend to communicate to us through the use of that term, first fruits of the spirit? That language is pulled from the Old Testament. Pulled from the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament, the first fruits of are understood as a guarantee of more to come. First fruits are a guarantee. They're a pledge, if you will, a down payment of more which is to come. Let me give you an example. In Leviticus 23, Israel celebrated each year what they called the Feast of First Fruits. You'll find that in Leviticus 23. In other words, the, the hard-working farmer would go to the field that he had planted, go to that field which he had labored in, go to the field where he had pulled the weeds and turned over the soil and pulled out and thrown out the rocks, where he had planted that seed, he would go to the field in preparation for a harvest, and as soon as the heads of grain would begin to ripen, he would take of the first fruits of the harvest, the very first portion of the harvest, and he would offer it up to the Lord. If he were faithful he would offer it up to the Lord. It was an acknowledgement that God was the one who provided the harvest. It was an acknowledgement that God is the one who gives us all things that we need. He knows what we need before we even ask him. God is the one who gives the harvest. God is the one who provides our very food. And we're to pray to him, give us this day our daily bread, right? He would take of the first fruits of the harvest and offer it up to the Lord. It was an acknowledgment that God had provided the grain. And having provided the first fruits, it was an acknowledgment, it was an expression of faith that God can certainly be trusted for everything that follows. If God has given the first fruits, then certainly there is much more to come. Well, God has given his new covenant people first fruits as well. Brothers and sisters, we have first fruits. And we see the same language in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Listen. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and Jesus Christ has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. In other words, there are many more to come. Jesus Christ raised from the dead as first fruits, what does that communicate to us? Many more to come. Who are the many more? Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the sons of God, those who will be revealed at the end of the age at the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the first fruits of many more. In chapter 16, the household of Stephanus is the first fruits of those converted in Achaia. In other words, there is much more to come. There have been first fruits in Dahabon. Praise the Lord. Many more to come. Many more to come. First fruits in New York. First fruits in Guatemala. There's first fruits over at Tab Met. (laughs) Many more to come. Many more to come. We've had our own first fruits, have we not? Many more to come. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is God's pledge to us. The Spirit of God is is God's guarantee to us. It's a down payment, if you will. What does a down payment communicate? When you make a down payment, what does that communicate? There's going to be more to come, right? The first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is God's guarantee that there is much more to come. That's what Paul says. We have the first fruits of the Spirit of God. And we have to ask then, we have to ask, what does Paul mean by what he says? It's not enough to... Understand what he says. What does Paul mean by what he says? What is the much more that is to come? There are a couple of different ways that you could look at that language. Paul could mean that the Spirit Himself is measured out to us in this life, but we will have the fullness of the Spirit, much more of the Spirit given to us in the next life. There is much more of the Spirit that is to come. That's one option. The second, he could be referring to the Spirit's work. The Spirit has begun his sanctifying work in the life of a believer, conforming the believer into the image of the Son. And there could be, and there is, much more of that work to be done as we are conformed into Christ's image. Could be the beginning of the Spirit's sanctifying work in the life of a believer. Or, Paul is saying that the first fruits of what God intends to lavish upon believers is the gift of the Spirit himself. The first fruits is the Spirit himself. The Spirit himself, the Spirit who is to us a spirit of adoption, the Spirit himself is the pledge. And the much more is the fullness of our adoption, the fullness of our inheritance, the fullness of our glory, the redemption of our body. It's the third idea that fits most closely with our context. The spirit of adoption himself is the pledge to believers. The spirit himself is the first fruits. The spirit himself is the down payment. He is our guarantee as we eagerly await the much more, which includes our adoption, includes the redemption of our body, includes a glorious inheritance glorified together with him. The spirit himself is our pledge. Verse 23, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the much more, right? The adoption, the redemption of our body. So the Spirit himself, in the language of Paul, is our guarantee of much more that is to come. The Spirit himself is our down payment, so to speak, of the much more that God has in store for those who love him. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples of that. Look at 2 Corinthians. A few pages to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter one. 2 Corinthians chapter one. And drop down there with me to verse 20. Chapter one, verse 20. We have much more to look forward to. And the Spirit is our down payment, is our guarantee. What a magnificent guarantee, amen? A magnificent guarantee that he is a guarantee of much more. Eye has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has planned, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has planned for those who love him. There is much more coming. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him, in Jesus Christ, are yes, and in Jesus Christ, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ has an, and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There, the Spirit is given as our guarantee, given as our pledge, but given as our guarantee of what? given us as our guarantee that all of the promises of God have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and toward us are yes and amen in him. All of the promises of God will certainly come to pass because God has said it and it's true and he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Make sense? Turn with me to Second Corinthians 5, just a few pages to the right, Second Corinthians chapter five, and look there at verse one. The Spirit is our guarantee. Verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this temporary dwelling, this earthly body, if it is destroyed, notice that we're not destroyed, it's our body that is destroyed. If this temporary tent is destroyed, we have not a temporary place, but a building, building from God, a house not made with hands, made by God, Eternal in the heavens. Four, verse two, in this body, in this tent, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, we groan, being burdened in this tent, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. We want to be glorified. We want to receive our glorified bodies that mortality may be swallowed up by life, by eternal life. No more decay, no more disease, no more pain. And he, verse 5, who has prepared us for this very thing, is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Given us the Spirit as a guarantee of what? Of our glorified body. Of our glorification. The Spirit is given to us as a down payment, as a pledge of our future glorification. The fullness of our adoption, in the language of Paul. The redemption of our body, in the language of Romans chapter 8. So, verse 6 then, we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, but in that condition we're confident, verse 7, because we walk by faith. Not by sight, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's better there, right? Let me ask you the question in consideration of verse 6. Where does that confidence come from? How is it that in this life, when we do not yet possess that which is ours reserved in heaven, we don't see that right now. We haven't possessed it yet. There isn't already in which it is ours. Peter says it's reserved there in heaven for us. Undefiled, incorruptible. It's not fading away. But we don't, yes, possess it in its fullness. So how is it that we are, verse 6, Paul can say we are always confident. Where does that confidence come from? What is the basis of that confidence? The basis of that confidence is that we have been given the Spirit as a guarantee. We have the Spirit of God as a pledge that God will fulfill his word in giving us the much more, that much more is coming. In other words, we can only take encouragement or we can only be comforted, we can can only be confident of that fact if the guarantee is known to us. Right? If the pledge is known to us. In other words, if, some, if a down payment were given and we didn't know about it, well, what comfort is that to me? What encouragement? How can I take confidence in something I'm not aware of? How can I be encouraged if I don't have the down payment? What good is the guarantee if we don't know we have it? Now, listen carefully for a moment. We've covered this subject before. Um, praise God. In his providence, we get to think about it again together. The things that we're discussing here now are matters of life and death. We're not playing games here in church. It's not just coming and listening to a talk and going home, living the rest of your life. The things we're talking about are eternal, of eternal significance. These are heaven and hell realities, life and death. How is it, how is it that you know you have the spirit? Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he who does not have the spirit is not his. If you do not have the spirit, You are not His. If you have the Spirit of God, He is the guarantee. He is the pledge that much more is coming. And that in your union with Jesus Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. Much more is coming. So the question, it begs the question how is it that you know you have the Spirit? How is it that you know that you are His? In chapter 13, verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul would exhort the Corinthians, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Paul says, test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you and in you by his Spirit, unless indeed you are disqualified? How do you know that you have the Spirit? Well, you look for the Spirit's evidence, the evidence of the Spirit's work in your heart and in your life. Do you have the first fruits of the Spirit? We're not referring to speaking in tongues. That's superstitious mysticism. We're not speaking of some mystical, superstitious feeling. I just feel tingles all over my body, you know. We're, not, we're, we're talking about tangible, observable, practical effects, tangible, observable, practical evidence of the Spirit's operation in your life. Do you have the Spirit? Let's think about this from our context in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but rather you are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh. In other words, you're not walking according to the flesh. You're not living as a pattern according to the lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. Your mind as a pattern, as a course of habit in your life is set upon the things of the Spirit. Not set upon the things of the flesh, gratifying the flesh, gratifying the lusts of the flesh. You're walking according to the Spirit as a habit, as a pattern in your life. You're walking according to the things of the Spirit. You're walking in a way that produces the fruit of the Spirit. Fruits of love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? Producing the fruits of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you by his Spirit the body may be dead because of sin. In other words, there's this principle of sin, this principle of remaining corruption still operative within your members, that principle of death that Paul described in Romans chapter six, Romans chapter seven, that principle of death still at work in your flesh, but the spirit within you is life because of righteousness. Not your own righteousness, but because of the imputed or gifted righteousness righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you were justified, God gave you the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift. What effect is that going to have in your life? It's going to have an impact. And the Spirit of God at work through that righteousness that is given to you as a gift is going to have an effect in your life. The pattern of your life is toward righteousness. The pattern of your life is toward holiness. The pattern of your life is distinctively against sin. Turning from sin. Turning to Christ in faith. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give spiritual life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's certainly life, eternal life at the end of the age when we are raised from the dead. But certainly in this life, we are raised to walk in newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death to sin becomes our death to sin. His resurrection to life, it's through union with him that we are raised to walk in newness of life ourselves. Has there been a change? a change in your relationship to sin, a change in your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, a change in relationship to righteousness and holiness. Do you hate sin? Are you embattled against your sin? Do you pursue holiness? Do you pursue righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst? Seriously, think with me for a moment. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The Lord Jesus Christ himself says that's a mark of conversion. Romans chapter 13, chapter 8, verse 13. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Where the Spirit of God is at work in the life of a believer, there is conviction of sin. I don't know if many of you remember that. When I was lost, I grew up going to church. I would go to church week in and week out, week in and week out. There was a time period when I was young, we went to church every time the doors were open. And I seldom if ever felt conviction over my sin. There are moments in time when worldly sorrow would creep in and I'd feel guilty having known that I offended God with my sin, but it was fleeting, it wouldn't last. There were no fruits of that, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There was no godly or godward sorrow over sin, it was merely worldly sorrow. Where the Spirit of God is at work in the life of a genuine believer, there is conviction of sin. The Spirit of God has come to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Where the Spirit of God is at work, we are made to see the exceeding sinfulness of our own sin. We're made to see it. There is Godward sorrow over sin. We groan, groan under the weight of our own sin, under the weight of the curse. We groan. Within ourselves, crying out with Paul, Romans chapter 7, O oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to finally deliver me from the body of this death? I praise God that Jesus Christ will. He's the only one who can. Right? We groan under the weight of our own sin. That is a work that is a fruit of the Spirit of God within you. The believer is one who is embattled over his sin. The believer is one who, with the enablement of the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the body, sees victory over sin, wages war against the deeds of the flesh. In other words, the believer is one who mortifies the flesh, puts off the old man and puts on the new man. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit... In other words those who set their minds on the things of the spirit as many as put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit as many as are walking in newness of life by the spirit these Paul says Romans chapter 8 verse 14 are sons of God The Lord told Nicodemus for example in John chapter 3 the wind blows where it wishes You can't see the wind You can't see the wind but you hear the sound of it. He says, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, but you see the effects of it. In other words, we see the evidence of the wind's presence. If you see no tangible, no observable, no practical evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your life, namely, that work of the Spirit of God to lead you into increasing holiness and increasing righteousness in an ongoing battle against your sin, then you have every reason to question whether or not you are even in the faith. You have every reason to question. Every reason to question whether you are truly a Christian. Now, that work of the Spirit varies from believer to believer it may look slightly different at times in the believer themselves at one point may look different from another point but if you look back over your life as paul would call us to do in second corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 do you see evidence of the spirit's work in your life do you not know that christ is in you by his spirit is operative within you by your spirit unless you are indeed disqualified. The spirit is God's pledge. The spirit is God's guarantee. And I would submit to you there are vast, vast, vast majority of professing Christians who go to churches. They're in churches all over the place right now, presuming to worship God, who have no understanding of this whatsoever, have never considered this, and their quote-unquote Christian life is little more than the fruit of some decision that they made to walk an aisle and to say a prayer. And when they leave the building this morning, they'll go to their lives and live like the rest of the world for the rest of the week with no observable, tangible, practical evidence of the Spirit's work in their life. And what many attempt to do is to put off that work of the Spirit as some, um, again, some superstitious... um, thing as they do with the rest of God's miracles in the Bible. <laughs> and this increasing rationalism with which that people, people look at the word of God and don't consider that it is God himself who is at work in the life of a believer. They set aside all of that and they say, I've decided, I've made a decision. I've done this thing or I've done that thing. I believe and I'm okay. If God saves a person, God will see to it in that person, by his spirit, that the fruits of that salvation are evident. We have the spirit of God as our pledge. And how can you take confidence in the much more, if you have no idea, if you cannot see or have not experienced the guarantee? Well, brother and sister, be encouraged. If you see evident, if you, if you say to yourself, my life changed, my life changed, it changed in ways that I cannot explain, that I am not responsible for myself. I see even now, militating against my flesh, this other principle within me, a principle of the Spirit that compels me to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I, my desires have changed. My affections have changed. I, I'm grateful now to God where I could care less before my life has changed. Jesus Christ has made of me a new creation. And if you can say that, if you can see any evidence, then be encouraged. He is a guarantee of much more. He is our pledge. He is our down payment. Much more is coming. Our inheritance, our glory at the end of the age, our conformity with the perfect person of the Lord Jesus Christ and communion with the triune God in eternity. What tremendous, tremendous riches, what tremendous blessings, right? God says, Ephesians chapter 1, he intends, Ephesians chapter 2, he intends to pour out upon believers all of these lavish blessings in order to show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amazing thought. The Spirit is our pledge Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. How do I know that I will inherit? I have the Spirit as a guarantee. How do I know that much more is coming? I have the Spirit as a guarantee. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Back in Romans chapter 8, point one on your notes, our present experience. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, and it's even because of the Spirit's work within us that we groan, groan groan within ourselves due to remaining corruption, groan within ourselves desiring to put off this body of death. However, it's also the spirit that enables us to lift our eyes, so to speak, our spiritual sight (laughs) above the plane of our present experience of groaning and of difficulty and of adversity to focus our attention on point two on your notes, our future hope, our future hope. Look at verse 23. Not only our present experience, now our future hope we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Although there is much, much that constitutes our future hope. Our future hope is here characterized by two statements of Paul in verse 23. First, the adoption, our adoption as sons. And second, the redemption of our body. Now, In verses 15, verse 15 and following, Paul just explained that we're already adopted as sons. We are the children of God, sons of God. And if sons, then heirs. We have received the spirit of adoption. The spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. So what does Paul mean then when he describes believers here in verse 23 as eagerly awaiting our adoption? Well, as much in the Christian life, this is something we need to learn and consider. As with much in the Christian life, there is an already and a not yet. There is an already and a not yet. There is an already aspect to our adoption, and yet there is an aspect of our adoption that is not yet. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, listen to how this fits together. Beloved, John says, beloved, now we are the children of God. Now, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There is a now, an already, and there is a not yet. We are the children of God, but we haven't yet entered into the fullness of what that means. We still have remaining sin to contend with. We still suffer the effects of the fall. We die. We are in this body of corruption. Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, at a time in the future, in that day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, the suffering of this present life will come to an end. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortality will put on immortality. Already, not yet. This is the pattern established even in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We will suffer with him already before we are all together glorified with him. Not yet. Jesus, although he was the the eternal son of God, yet Romans chapter 1 verse 4 was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Already, not yet. His humiliation preceded his exaltation. Already, not yet. He was the promised Davidic king when he was here. He now rules and reigns as king at the right hand of the majesty, and he now rules until all his enemies are made his footstool. Already, not yet. We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. It is there, undefiled, incorruptible. It does not fade away, but we have not yet inherited it. Already, not yet. There's a tension between the two. We live in that tension. Our future hope, that which we now eagerly wait for, and doesn't the presence of the Spirit, knowing that it has been guaranteed, knowing that we have that pledge, doesn't it make you long for it even more? Doesn't it make you long for it? Await even more eagerly, knowing that it's right there. <laughs> this life is short. Praise God. And it's right there. Already, not yet. That, that we, which we eagerly wait for reflects our present condition. That reality reflects our present condition in which we possess these blessings in our union with Jesus Christ, but we have not yet entered, in, yet entered into the fullness of those blessings that we'll receive at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, our full experience of all the blessings associated with our adoption as sons, our inheritance, our glory with Jesus Christ, the full experience of our deliverance from sin and sin's effects, which ultimately involves the redemption of our very bodies in the language of Second Corinthians chapter five, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now Paul says back in Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-four, that we were saved in this hope, saved in this hope, or saved with this hope. Verse twenty-four: For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, while we have been truly saved by God, while we have been truly saved, and while we really are promised indescribable blessings associated with our justification, associated with our right standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ, our present experience of these blessings is a limited experience, to say the least. It is an incomplete experience. And therefore... Our faith, our faith on this side of eternity, our faith in Jesus Christ for the promises of God to be fulfilled toward us must of necessity involve hope. What is hope? Hope is faith in Christ for the future. Hope is simply faith trusting in him for all the promises that are yet to come. Hope is faith in Christ for those blessings which are not yet seen. That's why faith in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, is described as the substance or the assurance of things not seen. Faith, our faith, is the substance. It's the evidence. That faith, which is a gift of God, remember, it's a gift of God. Our faith is the substance. It's the evidence or the assurance of those things which are hoped for. The evidence of those things which we have not yet received. The evidence of things not seen. Now think with me. If we currently possessed all of the fullness of what God has promised, if we currently possessed it, verse 24, if we could presently see all of it, all the fullness of what God has promised, if we presently possessed all that was promised, there would be no need for hope. Right? That's logical entirely. There would be no need for hope. Why would we continue to hope for something we currently see, we currently possess? We wouldn't hope for it. We'd have it. We'd possess it. Okay? We would possess it in all its fullness. However, It is the character, it is the nature of our present experience as those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we do not see or possess the fullness of our inheritance and we are to hope for it. We are to hope for it. And because there is so much more that awaits the believer in the age to come, hope in this life is, will be of necessity, the companion of our faith. That hope doesn't imply uncertainty. It's not like a wishful hope or a wishful thinking. Why is that? Like, Why is it that our hope is not uncertain? Because we have the Spirit of God as a pledge. The Spirit of God is our guarantee. The Spirit of God is our down payment. That hope is not uncertain or unsure. We've been assured of it. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God as a pledge. Our hope is a hope that serves as an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast. And if that is the case, if the Spirit of God is our pledge, our guarantee, and this hope is not an uncertain, not a a wavering hope or a fleeting hope or a, a future wish, but if that hope is sure and steadfast, then what does that do for our perseverance, for our endurance through times of difficulty, through times of trouble? through times of tribulation, right? Persevere, brother, persevere, sister. Keep your hope fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and all of those blessings that are ours at the end of the age. Those blessings that you have guaranteed to us by the Spirit's presence in your own life as a pledge of that inheritance. Keep your eyes of hope fixed on those blessings and persevere and endure to the end. This all follows the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? We're called to follow in his steps. It has been granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer for his name. We're to follow in his example, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. For the hope, you could say, that was set before him, that which was sure and... And certain glory, exaltation, a redeemed humanity, his in eternity. For the joy set before him, he persevered, even to the point of death, even death, the death of the cross, he persevered. So, brother, sister, language of Hebrews 11, consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself in the hands of sinners lest you become discouraged in your own soul. You have not yet strived to the point of bloodshed against sin as he did. We've considered our present experience. We've considered our future hope. Notice point three on your notes, our ongoing attitude then. Can you see how all of this just informs, fuels, drives our ongoing view and perspective of the Christian life? Our ongoing hope in those things which are yet to come, all guaranteed by his spirit. All of this should transform the way that we think, should transform what we believe, should transform how we act, how we conduct ourselves in this life. Our ongoing attitude then characterized in verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. But if we those who have been given assurance of such a future hope by God's pledge of the Spirit, those who live in this present life with such an expectation of future glory, if our faith is filled with hope for that which we do not yet see or experience, then our present lives are going to be marked by an eager waiting with perseverance. An eager waiting with perseverance. And that's due to the pledge of the Spirit, the guarantee of the Spirit. The more that we embrace through faith all that is ours in union with Jesus Christ, the more that it should produce within us a longing for its full possession, the more it should produce within us a longing for it. Think with me about that statement. The more that you embrace the truth of these things in faith, the more that you apprehend that, right? the more that it becomes a part of how you think, what you believe, What goes on between your ears in that gray matter? The more that you embrace these things through faith, the more that it's going to cultivate within you a longing for it, a desire for it. That is ours, and it's there waiting for us. We have the Spirit as a guarantee, as a pledge. The more it's going to cultivate perseverance, the more it's going to cultivate an eager waiting, the more it's going to cultivate within us a strong desire for God to fully and finally complete the good work that he has begun in us. But it's not merely an eager waiting or a longing that marks the believer in his present experience. It's an eager waiting with perseverance, with perseverance. Perseverance, brothers and sisters, calls us back to our responsibilities to Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, perseverance is not passive, it's not passively waiting. It's not the, the role of a Christian, so to speak, as soon as the Lord saves us, to put our white robe on ourselves, preferably the one, preferably one you didn't steal from the hotel. You put a white robe on yourself and you go out on a hill and you just wait for the Lord's return, right? It's, it's not passive. Perseverance is active. Perseverance is active. It calls us back to our responsibilities. We must persevere in faith, and in faithfulness to the end. Persevere in what? Persevere in what? Persevere in the mission and the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us to do. We are, Colossians chapter 1, filling up, as it were, those afflictions which are lacking, as Paul says, in the work or in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, his bride, his bride, is carrying on the work that he began. Carrying out the work that he has given us to do in this world. Namely, Namely, being fruitful and multiplying new creation children, offspring, image bearers of God through the preaching of the gospel that the glory of God might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We're to carry on the work of the gospel. We are to be lights that shine in a dark Place. That's the work that the Lord has given us to do on this side of eternity. And we must continue a faithful and persevering witness until He returns. His concern, Romans chapter 8, his concern in our study of Revelation on Sunday nights is a faithful and persevering witness as lights that shine in a dark place. A witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the gospel has been preached over all the earth, then. He'll return, right? Then he comes back. We must persevere in faith and in faithfulness to the end. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. God will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance, very same word, who by perseverance in doing good, not persevering in passive waiting, we certainly need to wait well but we need to persevere in doing good. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Actively seek. Not that that seeking merits salvation, but that seeking is a fruit of salvation. That seeking is a fruit of the Spirit's presence within your life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but rather obey unrighteousness, what do you have to wait for? Indignation. And wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. You see, it's not merely perseverance and passively waiting. Perseverance, our perseverance is an active endeavor. Perseverance in doing good, in obeying the truth, in actively pursuing the work that we've been given to do, in doing that work with diligence, doing that work with, with earnestness, doing that work with faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, brothers and sisters, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin. "...which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance, with perseverance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, counting the shame a common insignificant thing, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him... Who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls? You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Cultivate your hope in those things which you do not yet see. Do that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of his Spirit at work in you is a guarantee, is a pledge of that inheritance. Pursue that hope with diligence, with earnestness, with perseverance. Pursue your battle with sin, with perseverance, with endurance, with diligence, with fervency. Pursue your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue your witness with diligence, with earnestness. It's the work that we've been given to do. Persevere in faith, doing good until the end. And when he returns, amen, the sons of glory will be revealed with him. We do not know yet what we shall be. We know that when he returns, when we see him, We'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all God's people said to that, amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for these glorious promises. Thank you for the finished and completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are now redeeming your elect, gathering them in from the four corners of the earth, calling them to yourself, building your spiritual temple, a dwelling place of God by the Spirit, In anticipation of that day, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when many sons will be brought to glory. Thank you, Lord, that you have made the captain of our salvation perfect or complete through the suffering that he endured on our behalf. And Lord, I pray uh, you would refine us, uh, make us perfect, as it were, through that means. And bless us with the strength and the enablement of your spirit to endure it well to persevere well as you have your way with us. And may we be a fit bride for our bridegroom. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for the blessing of being able to participate in the work that you are doing on this earth and your redemptive plans and purposes. May may we be faithful in it as lights that shine in a dark place until he returns. Be with us by your spirit, O God. Give us, I pray, uh, the assurance, the guarantee of our future hope by the evidence of your spirit within us. Um, make that evident to my brothers and sisters, Lord, to encourage their hearts before you. And I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have the Spirit, or that you would convict them over their sin, that they would turn from their sin to trust in Jesus Christ and to trust him for a glorious inheritance that awaits all of those who have put their faith in him. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.